The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. Special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. If you have questions about the center, feel free to come up afterward and introduce yourself or check in with Jean, who's our program host tonight, back in the corner. And uh, some of you know, most of you maybe even know, that we're taking a look at uh, the meditation practice more formally. I mean, often, we're always talking about meditation practice, but uh, meditation practice is just like daily life practice, except the conditions are a little bit more simple. But even so, even though sitting practice is not so different than daily life practice, it also exists as a very particular form, or you could say ritual. And ideally, in a perfect world, we'd fall in love with meditation practice. Fall in love because it delivers the goods, right? It really helps. Helps us be uh, wiser, kinder, more functional, more skillful human being. And it feels good. You know, the Buddha said something like, it's good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good in the end. And it should beg the question, like, if it isn't good in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, like, if it we're not experiencing, you know, after some careful observation, if we're not experiencing some benefits, then maybe it's time to step back, in a sense, and, okay, what am I actually doing when I sit? What's the intention in my mind, what quality of sincerity is there in sort of taking up the instructions as I understand them? Am I clear about what I'm asking my mind to do? You know, and then check in with your Dharma friends or teachers or there's so much good and confusing stuff online, but they're definitely, you know, it's so, it's in a unique time that some of the deepest wisdom, most clearly articulated wisdom, is a click away on the internet. And some of the deepest ignorance, (laughs) delusion, is also just a click away on the internet. And we often don't know the difference, (laughs) which is a little concerning, but this is our predicament. So when, um, I mean, in every day in our sitting time, even if for you that's just two minutes, four minutes, hopefully for some of you it's 60 minutes or 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 20 minutes. Ideally, you know, it's 20 minutes or longer because it takes some time, depending on who you are and how your particular day is going, it just takes some time for the mind and body to process and release some of the gross level of craziness, spinning, that's going on in our mind. And so if we're just able to sit for a few minutes, we may not be able to even process all of just the surface level spinning. But that's okay, because even if we don't sit, even sitting our chair in that corner of our apartment or our meditation cushion sitting there in that little uncluttered place in our house. Maybe you have an altar or maybe you just stare out a window. But you have that place and it's like a living, breathing symbol in your home 
that I really value, I deeply value this movement towards honesty, this clear, kind, immediate or direct connection with the way it is. And, uh, you know, the Buddha wasn't afraid to dramatize this or even scare us because it's the habit we all have, you know, ingrained through our cultural conditioning and maybe even to some degree our genetic conditioning uh, to be superficial, to immediately organize the immediacy of our experience into a thought about what's happening, right? So instead of like being in the immediacy of sitting, we have this thought, I'm at Common Ground at Sunday night. And it's like then I don't have to attend in that subtle, immediate way because I've abstracted it into the concept it's Sunday night, I'm at a Dharma talk at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, I'm this person, right? We have a story that sort of holds the place of reality. But the story, I'm at Common Ground, is not the experience of being at Common Ground, right? So it's the same thing. You go home with your cat or your partner or whatever, yourself, (laughs) And you can have a concept or you can actually be there in awareness, in the immediacy of seeing, hearing, sensing sensations, knowing thoughts are just thoughts. But it's, it takes a real training to live more and more of our life in that immediacy and that directness or more and more of our life where we're not swept away, not intoxicated, I think is a good word, by the thought of what's happening or the concept of what's happening. And so our meditation practice and our meditation centers, this place, this room, even the posture, you know, part of the statue of Buddhas that you see or other, you know, sort of Buddhist saints that are sitting in that serene stable way, you know, where the, the, you know, if the artist is doing their job, the being looks relaxed and there's some sense of composure, some sense of integrity in the posture, some sense of like being okay, being right in the middle. You know, it's not, there's not a sense of the person like being lost in thought or like just not there, but instead there's much more of a sense and even some of the postures, uh, the mudra, one of the hands is touching the earth or you don't need to be afraid. I mean, all the symbology is to remind us of a way of being that's possible for us, right? Otherwise, what's the use of all the stuff? It's not useful unless it's evoking something. And for some of you, it will evoke. And for other Others of you, the traditional artwork or, you know, symbology won't be that useful. That's okay. On a window looking at a tree and seeing the leaves, you know, the dappled light coming through the leaves or the fluttering of the leaves in the breeze may be much more useful than having a statue of a guy sitting, you know, there in front of you. So be practical about it. But one way or another... 
the form, we need a form, we need a, a like a, something that supports the mind remembering this, this deepening, growing value we have. You know, I mean, all these sound like cliches, but about living a more authentic, a more immediate, authentic, honest, in a more authentic, real way with reality, like connected, not abstracted, not lost in thought. I think I mentioned not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the great uh, Thai meditation masters, Buddhist monks of the last century, was asked, like from the point of view of an awakened person, what is modern life? How would an awakened person describe their experience of like normal, ordinary human existence? And this teacher responded, lost in thought. Uh, that, that best describes what just is going on all around us. And of course, mostly we're participating in that as well. So that's why we have a center. That's why community members have you know, made this place happen, and there are many places, and people have places in their homes, right? And because we need this reminder that there's another way. So there's all that cultural habit energy towards superficiality and being distracted and getting absorbed in things that are ultimately not that important in our lives, that in the moment seem important, what did Donald Trump say in his acceptance speech? Or, you know, what will Hillary say? Or, you know, what's happening in the Game of Thrones? Or, you know, some movie or some... These things seem really important. And, you know, some of those things are actually have some importance in some sense. But what turns out to be more important is this possibility of transforming how the mind connects. Are we going to connect, be, in a sense, dependent on our concepts, our thoughts, or can we have a more direct, immediate, honest relationship? And as the Buddha and my teachers, our teachers suggest, realize a liberation that comes. Suffering comes from being lost in thought, being oppressed and dependent on our thoughts about things. Our thoughts about things, all our self-dramas, all the dramas about the world that we identify, the dependency on those drama, the attachment, the identification is oppressive. Now, I'm not saying whether those stories are true or not true. What I'm saying is the mind's dependence on stories, the dependence our mind has on concept, the identification, the attachment is oppressive. So like whatever thought, whatever idea you have about yourself or somebody in your life that's important, important relationship you have with someone in your life, Your mind's identification with that, the certainty you have, taking the thought you have, the image you have, the idea you have to be the truth is a cause for stress and suffering.
whatever it is. Even, it's not just the important people in your life or yourself, ideas you have about yourself, but ideas we have about America, right? There's so much suffering, and anybody who has a fixed idea, good or bad, about America, or about this, about that, about kitchen appliances, about any number of things. The Viking Stadium, I heard they opened it up, you know. Some of you might think it's a monstrosity sitting there. Some of you might think it's a palace to be celebrate community in. But any fixedness, any identification, any attachment to your view about the Viking Stadium is suffering. So when we sit, this ritual of sitting, we're, we're literally uh, rewiring the heart, the mind, to be in reality, in this experience of the mind and body, in a different way, not the old way. Now, it seems like a lot of the time when we're sitting, we're just doing the old way, but it's even more vivid, you know, the neurotic habits of attachment and identification and struggling and reactivity are even more apparent because we don't have so many distractions. So we see that neurotic activity, but unfortunately, that's often the way into this transforming practice we call awakening. Because, you know, what are we waking up to? Well, we're waking up to the way it is, a more direct, immediate experience. Well, if what's going on is a lot of neurotic activity then waking up to that is going to be unpleasant. Right? Seeing that, not being lost in it. You know, because a lot of the times we're suffering, but we're so lost in the obsessiveness, let's say, the obsessing, that we don't realize how stressful it is. But now in the form of meditation, you know, hopefully, first of all, the momentum of our neurotic activity of worrying and planning and obsessing about this and wondering what you think and imagining who I'm going to become when my practice gets going well. And But now we're aware of that activity to some degree. We're still lost in it to some degree, but we're also aware of it and we're aware of the stress, the tension that goes with planning mind, worry mind, judging mind, comparing mind, hoping mind, hating mind, whatever, you know, whatever pattern has been activated, we see that any mental activity whatsoever combined with identification, the mind taking that mental activity personally, it refers to me, it's about me, it's me doing it, right? That's, that's the sort of flavor of, of identification. Any of that, then, is experience. There's a, a, the best definition I've heard, visceral de- definition of dukkha, that, that quality of stress, is the squeeze on the heart. Because it, it actually sort of feels, not always in the heart, but often in the heart center, but just a general constriction of life energy with any attachment, any identification, and so the sitting practice is kind of this, this uh, place of balance where because there's enough sensitivity, because there's fewer distractions, 
the mind is more likely to be able to track when dukkha, when that squeeze is more intense and when it's less intense. And we can start to connect the dots. Like, well, what's going on when the heart feels more released, more open, lighter, less constricted, less tight? What's going on when the heart feels more contracted, more tight, more oppressed? We just start learning about the causes for suffering and the causes for release. That's what I mentioned last week. And the key is, like, to do this work, because the only way that sitting meditation practice becomes different than the rest of the day is we pick up a theme and we try to hold that theme in mind. And generally, the theme is always the way it is. But that's sort of abstract, like, what does he mean, the way it is? So we, you know, the Buddha and our teachers, they say, well, Give yourself a theme. Like, if the way it is is too abstract, then how about the way the body is, the way the in-breath is, the way the out-breath is? So ideally, we're having, we're training the mind to have a more direct experience of things in and of themselves, not the idea we have of what's happening, but thought as just thought, sight as just sight, sound as just sound, Sensation is just sensation. So we give ourselves a little training mechanism, like being aware of the body, the breath in the body. This is a classic technique. There are many, many techniques, but one of the best is the experience of embodiment. So those of you who are reading along in Meditation, A Way of Awakening by Ajahn Sushito, and on our blog now is the link if you want to download a copy of the book for free. It's a wonderful manual of meditation. We're going to be using it as a study resource for the next six months or so. Don't feel like you have to read the book, but if you want additional study material, download the book. I don't know if a printed copy is still available, but you can always write the monastery or email the monastery um, where that link to download it is and ask them if they have any paper copies available to, to send them out. They will if they have them. But in any case, this particular section we're reading on page 17 is about the importance of embodiment, the experience of sensation. And now, just as an example of what I've been talking about, the idea that I have a body, right? Just we can say that to ourselves right now, like, yeah, this is my body. I have a body. It's right here. These are all thoughts. The thought This is my body, I have a body, I like my body, I don't like my body, I wish this were true about my body. Those thoughts are not the experience of embodiment. I mean, they're somewhat connected, but a thought is just the thought, like, I have a body. That's like, as a present moment reality, the thought, I have a body, is just that little blip of cognitive activity. It's not much of anything. I have a body. Just repeat that thought in your mind and see for yourself directly, immediately, what is the subjective reality of the thought, I have a body. But it seems like it points to something. But what does it point to? That's what we're interested in. So the experience of embodiment is what the thought can point to. So what is that? 
well, there's hardness, there's vibration, there's coolness, there's warmth. Right? And in the guided meditation, I sort of brought us down from sort of this sort of, oh yeah, my body, which is such a superficial relationship to body. I mean, basically, we live in the body, we're living out of the body, we're living connected with the body through the body, and yet most of the time, to be honest, we're just not aware of the experience of embodiment. So, like, it might have been surprising to sort of realize, oh yeah, pretty much it's just skin, flesh, and bones. I mean, those are also concepts, I, I understand. But those concepts point to a more direct experience of the body. Right? And then, then the next stage, you know, the next stepping down into reality, you know, in Buddhism we say dharma or dhamma, the way it is. So the stepping down then from the idea of flesh, skin, bones, you know, the more visceral reality of the body, anatomical reality of the body, is like actually, you know, especially when our eyes are closed, there really isn't skin, flesh, and bones. They're just sensations. The experience of embodiment is just sensation. Even the sort of shape of the body loses meaning. The shape of the body only has meaning when we have the visual form, but the visual form is different than the experience of embodiment too, right? So you see, it's not like there's something mystical about feeling sensation as sensation, but what's so important about this training, this rewiring of our mind, is a movement toward non-conceptual reality or liberating the mind from the intoxication of thought, the intoxication of concept. Because it is easy for us, isn't it, to get lost in thought. That's the very strong tendency of our mind. So we have to interrupt that intoxicant of thinking, of conceptualizing, of being lost in thought, so we undertake this training. And to remember the importance of this training, we have a ritual. We call it sitting meditation practice. And so we sit down. We have a form. There's a ritual to it. As we're approaching the cushion or the chair, we remember like this kind of gratitude. Like, I am so happy that there have been women and men through the generations who have put aside time in their busy lives and have passed down generation by generation the great value of a human being sitting down in a time of day where they don't have to worry about survival. Right? They don't have to worry about the cat. They don't have to worry about their cell phone because that's off. The cat's in the other room. Somebody else is, are taking, is taking care of the kids. The job or whatever, your responsibilities are put aside for that period of time. I mean, it's a, it's a profound privilege for a human being to have 30 minutes to put aside for this practice. We should be so deeply grateful because there are a lot of human beings for all kinds of reasons where it's not very easy or impossible for them to do this kind of practice. 
So we want to have that sense of gratitude even before we get to the cushion, just remembering, oh yeah, I'm going to sit tonight. It's like, I am so happy. I found these teachings. I have a life that allows me to do this work. And to really see it as the most important work because it allows us to show up in our life in a completely different way. And I'll get to that in a moment. But really a radically different way. Because if we don't do this work, what we're destined to do in our life is to live our life, you know, all the activities, all of our relationships in life, we're living it through the lens of self, all my self-dramas, all my self-fears, all my self-desires and cravings, all my delusions of like, not my fault, not my problem. We've been talking about racial justice issues lately at the center, and Shelley and Gabe, um, two of our teachers, are going to be doing a three-week course in August on Tuesday night, um, the connection between awakening and looking at racism. And just understanding, like, uh, like how do we show up in this imperfect world where we've been conditioned so profoundly by culture? It's so hard to be skillful unless we do this work because whether we want to or not, we're just driven by our thoughts about things. And these thoughts have been repeated so continuously, we're just unaware of all of our cultural conditioning unless we do this kind of work. One way or another, we have to do this work or we're destined to continue acting out our conditioning. And ways in ways that just cause a lot of suffering for ourselves and of course for others. So we're we're basically destined to be a neurotic, self-centered person unless we do this work. But when we do this work more and more and we realize that all of that addiction, that identification with the conceptualizing process, with the thinking process with the ideas and concepts our thinking mind is generating, constructing, when we learn how to be in the moment in a more immediate and direct way, then all of a sudden what's possible is a different perspective on thought. Now the mind understands, oh, that's just a thought. Now we've all had this insight, I'm assuming. Some of our more gross ways of conceptualizing you know, whatever it might be, you know, you know, one of the interesting things when you meet somebody from a different culture or, you know, you, you've met your first person who has a different sexual orientation than all the other people around you. And all of a sudden, that direct, immediate relationship with that person, it sort of exists in contrast with all of your ideas and conceptions you've had about that kind of person. I mean, you could just, any sort of, could be somebody from Poland. You know, you have ideas about Polish people, and then you meet somebody from Poland. And now, there's this possibility of, like all of a sudden we realize the baggage is just baggage, right? And maybe some of it's actually like, especially as you get to know more and more people, like maybe some of it, oh, you understand like why there is that. You picked up that kind of cultural baggage, right? And some of it is just like plainly wrong, like not helpful at all and very destructive 
a lot of those prejudices or biases we have. And we have it not just in this sort of level of you know, racism or the ways that we judge and stereotype and prejudice groups of people, but we have it about ourselves and about existence itself. We have all these established, unseen, fixed ideas, and it, they literally exist in the heart as a prison, an oppressive, weightful prison but one that we've been living inside of and oppressed by for so long that the weight, the experience of suffering or the oppressiveness of it is just like, well, yeah. I mean, it's like we don't know how, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, says, just because you're not aware that you're suffering doesn't mean you're not suffering. And so one of the surprising things is when the mind steps outside of that for a moment, comes into the experience of things in and of themselves. So the mind no longer governed, no longer oppressed by our concepts. Everything feels so alive and so light and so free that it actually can be confusing and surprisingly even frightening. The freedom itself can sometimes initially be experienced as frightening because it's so unfamiliar. It's like the example that's given is, and this happens, you know, it's so, it just breaks our heart. I just saw a video recently of some chimps, chimpanzees that were used for medical studies for several years and then eventually released and somebody built a really nice park, I think it was in Florida, for them to live out their life. And uh, I don't know how many days, but for a long time they just, you know, they would stay really close to their cage. You know, they had spent most of, well, I think their entire life uh, for many years in this very small cage. And they didn't, you know, there's this great little many-acre park for them with climbing things and trees and water and other chimpanzees to hang out in. And it took them some time to, like, trust the experience of not being imprisoned in the cage, like that that was safe because like all they know is being in the cage. And so the sitting practice, we want to, like part of the purpose of the talk tonight is to inspire us to create this form, this ritual, and honor it. Like I'm doing something, I'm not just like calming down. I mean, a lot of the sort of benefits that get highlighted a lot in mass media around meditation are true. You know, you, you do release stress, you know, with practice. Your mind gets pretty good at tranquilizing, self-tranquilization, you know, where you can calm down. Not every single time, but you just will gain a competence at calming down. But the practice is so much more than that. It really is this profound transformation in how the mind understands uh, and really discovers how oppressive and limiting. When we're living with a mind that's identified and attached to its mental constructions, we don't realize how limiting life is. 
That means every thought I have about me is somehow self-referential. So if I think, God, I'm stupid, it's like that is experienced as a, a, a real existential suffering because it seems like it's referring to me when I hate myself or when I think somebody's better than me or when I do something humiliating or when I worry about loss or death or you know whatever. Because what we're doing when we're lost in thought is we're constantly defending something ephemeral, which is our mental construction of who I am, which in- involves how safe I feel, how secure I feel. But the story of me will never be a secure thing, which is why we're constantly working. We don't realize it because it's so second nature now, but we're constantly working on our story. It's like a neurotic writer constantly doing revisions, constantly shoring up the storyline, constantly trying to put a spin on it that feels better. But the stress of doing that is always asserting itself, inserting itself into the storyline. Like, why does it feel so hard? Why is it so scary? Why is it so insecure? So we try to keep ahead of it a little bit. But it's, So the, the basic point is that the mind identified with the conceptualizing, thinking, mental construction process is a really tormented realm to live in. And the only escape we get is deep sleep and really good distractions, which are only going to be temporary, and we always have to come back. You know, So basically, distractions mean getting lost in somebody else's story, right? That's what a movie is, or listening to somebody and their torments or their excitements, and we forget the do, the work of maintaining our own dramas for a little while, while we absorb into somebody else's drama, right? But it's not really different. It's just there's a little bit more space because it's not my drama; it's somebody else's drama. It's James Bond's drama, or you know, whoever else. <laughs> repeat some of the characters in Game of Thrones, but I can't pronounce their names. (laughs) So, see if you, you know, when you think about your practice, when you, you know, are approaching your sit for that day, when you're coming to a place like Common Ground, see if you can tune in to kind of respect and devotional energy Like, I am so grateful that there is this practice, there is this form where I I can use to remember, like, I don't want to be swept away by distraction. I don't want to live a superficial existence lost in my thoughts about myself and others. There's got to be something else. And the only way to find that something else is I have to find a means for stepping out of that in that seductive place of wanting to think about everything. And so how do we do that? So the Buddha hands us a technique. There are many, as I mentioned, but one of the basic ones, one of the classical techniques that works for almost everyone is training the mind to connect and sustain awareness with the experience of embodiment, the experience of sensation as sensation. 
not the image of the body, not our thoughts about the body or opinions about the body or why is my knee hurt so much, but sensation as sensation. And the more that you can have this all-inclusive, so not just an intimate, subtle connection with the body, but also, equally importantly, the breadth of awareness. Right? So there's both depth and breadth to this mindful awareness. So there's really three. There's the depth, the subtlety of awareness of the body. There's the breadth, the all-inclusive. So the whole body is allowed in all-embracing, all-inclusive awareness. And then the third sort of training is the continuity. So we want to be subtly aware, sensitive, intimate. We want to be all-inclusive. The whole body is included. And then that in a continuous way, not just a momentary connection with the body in a breath and a depth, but then moment by moment by moment. And see, that continuity especially will break the spell because you can't be lost in thought and subtly, broadly, and continuously aware of sensation, body as body. You can't. You just can't do, the mind can't do both things at the same time. So if you, and of course you could, instead of bodily awareness, you could work with sound. Like I said, there are many ways to break the spell the mind has with its, with its conceptions, its thinking. But this is the, a classic one. And the nice thing about it, as I suggested when you were introducing yourself with others in the room, is then you can take it on the road. So if you train every day for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 2 minutes, then let your transition out of your formal sitting time. Don't lose the experience of embodiment. Keep coming back to the experience of embodiment. Why can't we live our life? And the thing is, it creates that perspective because when you're aware that standings like this, sittings like this, bodies like this, sensations are like this, then that mental activity can be recognized. Oh, that's just a thought. That's just emotion. It's just an emotional tone and mental content. There's so much freedom in a sense, stepping out of the story and realizing that the story of who I am, who you are, what's happening, that the story is just a story. It's just that mental activity. You know, the world is going to hell. I mean, the politicians are so, and then there's global warming, and then, you see, doesn't that seem real? Right? But it's just thought. Right? It's just thought. See, now do you see how lighter it seems? I could go on a riff and we'd get, you know, if I did a good enough job, we'd all get sucked in. Oh, yeah, he's right. It is bad. And, I, and, I, and now that I'm in my 50s, my mind's not as clear. I can't even be aware of how bad it is. It's hard to keep it in mind. You know, and I don't even know if I trust the people in this room. You know, out of 100 people, there's got to be a few really bad people here. Right? I mean, what are the odds? Maybe more than a few. Could be the person next to me. And then, and in a moment, we could realize, you know, like, oh yeah, the body's really tight. Well, tightness is just tightness, right? We have that sort of whole body awareness, subtlety, breath, continuity, 
for a few moments at least. It's just like this. And then, and then the, the thought, because you know, we've been spinning with how terrible everything is, and then, but, but now we'll just see that and the emotional tone and realize, and that's just something being known. It's like pops the balloon, the sort of this inflation of the mental construction. It seems real, like a dream seems real. And then someone wakes us up, you know. We're sleeping with someone and they're sort of doing that trembling they do when they're being attacked by something in their dream, right? And you say, honey, you know. And they go, oh, thank you. You know, I was getting eaten up or, right? And a moment before it was real and then the next moment the mind realizes that was just a dream, right? Just a dream. So what's really real? Well, this is real, right? This non-conceptual reality right now. But then you go, but what about ISIS? That's a thought. And if there's any charge, that's a charge. But in this moment, this is what's real. This is our life right now. We don't need to be, say, everything else doesn't exist. If we do, that's a thought. But we... Can we live moment by moment and can we relate and respond, engage our reality moment by moment? It doesn't mean we don't plan. You'll see, you, you actually plan better. You'll be more prepared to respond to the twists and turns of our life, to the big problems, the little problems. But what we're doing is we're showing up. We're not living according to the story we have. We're living according to what's showing up doing what's next. And it, as I said earlier, it's really hard for us to sense how liberating this is to realize that the stories are just stories. So it would be nice to hear from folks tonight, and in particular what would be nice to hear from some of you, both new folks and uh, experienced people, is just like your relationship to the ritual of sitting meditation and your love and hate of, your, you know, of this particular form, what you've learned from it, uh, and of course, any questions that you have. So remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this, not up and down. So who'd like to begin? If you want to say your name, you can do that as well. What comes to mind? Yeah, please, start us off, Kathy. I'm Kathy. I just want to thank you for this talk. For That's something that I needed to hear tonight and to about how important it is to sit. Um, I've gotten out of the habit of it. And I have all sorts of excuses that I tell myself, but I also see things starting to spiral in a more negative direction than they did when I was more consistent. And I've stayed mindful, so I don't I'm sitting every day. Yeah, because we're planting seeds even if we're sitting just five or ten minutes. And by that I mean we're strengthening the intention to be mindful, which will then show up during the day. So it, it, it's really important, that formal part. And what happens is people come to the practice when they really need it, and then they do it with a lot of integrity because it matters. And then their life starts to work better, and it doesn't seem to matter as much to do the formal practice, but things change. So that's why the Buddha would, would use things like 
contemplate your own death, contemplate losing. I mean, even in like the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they'd have very graphic images like you're a parent, a limbless parent, no legs, no arms, sitting on a river, side of a river, watching your child get swept away. Right? So like you're helpless. There's nothing you can do. So you want to train so you're prepared for that kind of moment. Right? I'm, I, I'm not saying you need to work with that. Maybe you don't need to scare yourself to that degree. But what you want is like even when your life is working well, you want to remember that it won't always be so pleasant, our life. Things are going to change. So let's cultivate a mind, a heart, that's going to be stable and clear and skillful no matter what shows up in our life. Yeah, thanks, Kathy, for sharing that. Yeah, please. Is it Glenda? Yeah. So you just mentioned um, death, and I... Um, I've been in that period that you were just talking about of meditating for an hour in the morning for the last maybe month and a half because it seems really important right now. Um, And I've been alternately struggling with this complete feeling of helplessness and like um, I'm not important to anybody and nobody's important to me in a very deep way. And it feels like a kind of death. And then, at the same time, I'm reminded of um, this Zen quote that I remember from years ago uh, that a friend gave me, which is, die every day, it's all good. Um, And I feel like I'm in that moment where, um, I don't know, like, I want to say, like, if I just knew what to do, (laughs) you know, um, or like, if I knew how to orient myself to these feelings, then maybe it would be productive, And maybe this is like, you know, even those thoughts are like not the thoughts, but um, I don't know. It feels like it could be like maybe it's an important place to be, but um, it often feels very overwhelming. Um, But also tonight you said that um, sometimes it's funny because we don't even know that we're suffering because sometimes it's very, very overwhelming when I'm sitting. Um... And sometimes when I sit, I try to invite the feelings in, and it's like they're not even there. But that's a feeling too, right? That numbness. Yeah. And to accept that too. And one thought that came to mind, Glenda, when you were sharing, is just uh, like to, to be that friend and to model that wisdom that you would like to see around you and the people around you. Like you be that person that has that quality of integrity, that willingness to see things, to be intimate with life. And because basically what you're modeling is a kind of profound compassion for human existence, your human existence. And wouldn't that be nice for somebody else to see around them? You can be that person that they see, right, and helps them. And there's something about generosity that is deeply healing. So sometimes when we feel so much like we need support, it's exactly the opposite thing. It's like we do something generous that also takes care of ourselves, but is offer to the world, okay, I'll be that person 
that I would like to run into. I'll express those qualities that I could really use seeing in another person right now. Because otherwise what we end up doing is complaining that there's no good teachers, there's no good role models, there's no good supports out there. Because it's part of this uh, nihilistic thought, why bother? Who cares? What's the point? You know, a kind of story about giving up, about it doesn't matter. And that's a thought. That's just a story, but it's a very compelling story. Because we tend to gravitate between real willful efforts to make things better and then feeling betrayed and giving up and being in a more nihilistic, depressed, helpless place. But what we can do is, in a more direct and immediate way, become the freedom, become the love, become the kindness, become the fearlessness we're not seeing in the world. Right? To become the integrity that we're not seeing in the world. We can do that, actually. In just really simple ways like how we deal with food, how we feed this body. I mean, really simple ways, how we care for the body. I'm not even talking on the level of fixing the world, but just the integrity and the kindness and the uh, clarity we bring to taking care of this body, this little creature, this bodily existence, and then maybe what's right around us in our immediate circle, like how we interact with the person at the checkout line. I don't know about anything else, but I'm having... I'm going to have a real relationship grounded in kindness for these 25 seconds when I check out my groceries or whatever. I mean, these things change our lives. These just little changes. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing. Louis, you want to finish this off? We have about three minutes to go. I keep finding it of great value, just the, the thought of letting go. Um, and I, you know, embody that by how I let go of my breath. And there's so many things that come up uh, through a day where, you know, that kind of instruction helps me move through stuff. The meditation has certainly made me more sensitive. And there is a way where whether I make up a story about why my brother did this or that, or, well, making up a story about something he's done, and I get into this negative place, and then discover what the real story is. <laughs> and It's so humiliating, isn't it? And then that can be a, a, a whole nother reason to like, have this inner critic jump on me and reaffirm all the negative stories about myself. And I, when I let go, I realize, oh, I just got another opportunity to realize how patterned my thoughts are and and how habitual habitual I can be about making up stories that have not a whole lot to do with reality. And um, 
there it it like opens up a space for uh, a kindness towards myself and everybody else. Yeah, and that humility that allowed for that opening, that open space, to see the limitations of our stories, right? Yeah. Did you have more to say? I kind of interrupted. Um, well, it, it's just uh, an invitation to keep trusting the process and not to get not to make up a story about the ambiguity of things or the difficulty of things, to just sit in it <laughs> and breathe through it. And usually a better understanding arises. And that's the fruit of your practice, that, that trust in that open space, in that ambiguous open space. And by the way, Louis um, Alameyu, uh, is one of our teachers here, and every usually every fall and spring he does a workshop for activists and artists, really using awareness practice and other healing spiritual practices to support presence in your life as an artist, activist, or human being. Anybody's invited. So take a look in the fall calendar when it comes out in another few weeks, and look, I don't know if it's gotten scheduled yet, but it will get scheduled in the next week or two that fall uh, program schedule. But in any case, we need to end here. It's 8.30. Let's just take a few seconds, just enough time to take a couple breaths together. Appreciate the silence. Learning to trust the unformed space of the heart. Learning to trust the experience of embodiment, really resting in the experience of the body as sensation. And finally, Feeling, if you can, a real sense of devotion and gratitude, appreciation for these teachings and for our practice. And really happy to be part of the causes and conditions for real peace and freedom from suffering in our heart and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.